You're listening to Tasting Together with Andre Pru and Maroki Tong. Is the sun up past 5 p.m. yet? Up past 5 p.m. I just、um, pretend that I don't notice anything until spring arrives. Do you even pay attention to the sun? Like, you're notoriously a night owl, right? Yes, but that doesn't mean I don't enjoy the rays of sun upon my body. I just prefer to enjoy them after noontime as opposed to at 5 a.m. in the morning, like you do. <laughs> yeah, we have that, those weird moments sometimes where you're going to sleep when I'm waking up. Yes. Now, to be fair, I don't actually sleep at 5 a.m., I just don't want to wake up at 5 a.m. All right. So, over the past few weeks,、um, I'm halfway through my dry ish January, and I always say ish because I like to leave a little bit of、um, pencil area for professional obligations.、Uh, later on in the episode, we're going to be talking about something that you and I got to experience that's generally one of the highlights of January down in Niagara. Yes, ice wine. Ice wine time, the thing that everyone in the world knows、uh, that Canada makes for wine. And nobody drinks, but we're going to find out <laughs> why or whether that's actually true. I, and actually, I've been really curious like, through the winter about like, what the ice wine producers have been doing. It's been so warm, warm and like, reasonable, and except for like, the very end of December, relatively dry, except for the few days that we had a bunch of rain.、Um, And also, you had a chance to recently say goodbye to、uh, what, for a lot of people during the pandemic, was,、um, I guess, like something that offered some knowledge and was one of the first places to pivot and became kind of a kind of a hub during the pandemic for wine lovers in downtown Toronto. I think not only that, but also really、um, pioneered like a change in culture and how we treated. Wine and alcohol overall in the, in the city and beyond, right? Like, I think it was like a really pivot of the culture,、um, maybe something towards like maybe a little bit more、um, European or something just a little more open. And as you said, a lot of knowledge. And, and, and my heart was very broken by, the, by this particular event. And that event that we're both alluding to is the closing of Peter Pantry in Toronto,、mm-hmm. which was、um, a sister location to Peter Pan, the、mm-hmm. bistro, which is still open, by the by, guys. I would have been more than heartbroken if we lost Peter Pan, which has been such a staple, like such a. It's、um, an institution. An, yeah, an institution of the Toronto restaurant scene for a long time and、um, a very beloved restaurant that I've always loved attending. And what.、Um, To give anyone who's not been to Peter Pantry a backstory, a little bit of a backstory. So during the pandemic, of course, as we all know, restaurants closed down.、Um, they were struggling to do business and they, a lot of restaurants pivoted towards takeout and、um, becoming a bottle shop because it was an opportunity to, you know, sell and, and、uh, sell your wines that you could no longer pour in your restaurants and kind of show customers that there's an opportunity to buy things that may not necessarily be available at your LCBO. Well, and I think that was like what the smart bottle shops really pivoted to. I still remember working in the newsroom at,、uh, at CFRB where they were sending a reporter out to Jack Astor's to talk about how take home booze was this abject failure in the province of Ontario. And I was just like,、oh. well, you know, I, you know, I think we're going to unpack like how this is like what the story I'm about to tell is a symptom of a much bigger problem and probably the reason why Peter Pantry went out of, went out of business or, or shifted his business model. But Um, yeah, obviously, no one during the pandemic was going to go to Jack Astor's and pay a $5, $10, $15 markup on a bottle of Smirnoff when the LCBO was still functioning.、Mm-hmm. I think what a lot of people and, and what our newsroom didn't understand at the time was that in order to buy wines that you can't get at the LCBO, you need to buy them via consignment. So there are wine agents that bring products into the province, and a lot of them sell to restaurants. And we're talking about. Rare wines, they're not necessarily expensive wines, but I mean, let's be real, for the most part, these wines are a little more expensive than your $9 bottle of Yellowtail at the LCBO. But、um, we're talking about like rare bottles, and, and to buy from consignment as a private consumer, you need to buy a whole case, either、yeah. cases of six or 12. And paying a slight markup at a bottle shop means that I don't have to buy a full case of the wine. And as a wine lover, like, It rocked my world. Like, this was amazing. We finally have access to these wines that the LCBO don't have the courage to bring in. This is one of those things I'd be very interested in putting a poll out to our listeners, or like maybe I'll put it out on my Instagram, Nine Ounces, please, so our listeners could try and vote on it. But I'd be really curious to know, like, the average consumer when they go to the restaurants in the past, 
when you are looking for a glass of wine or a bottle of wine, how deep do you look into where it's coming from, right? Like, are you buying, when you're picking a bottle of wine, are you going, hey, is this a wine that I can actually get on my own at a fraction of the price? Or is this a wine that I know I can't get my hands on? Because I know before, like before I got into wine, before I really understood the whole thing about agencies or anything, mm-hmm. when I went to a restaurant, I went, okay, if I'm about to pay what I know is a, a marked up bottle of wine, I want to make sure that I get the chance I, I know that i'm drinking something that i cannot get my hands on regularly and that's what i'm paying i'm paying for that pre that ex, that experience that rare experience as you said and maybe another way to explain describe to people like if you visit in a, a winery in ontario you will often see a lot of bottles on, on in the winery that you'll never see at the lcbo because the lcbo might only carry one or two of their bottles but if you want to explore the rest of the right uh, uh, their lineup you have to go and buy from the winery directly or online and this this it's like a sort of similar relationship except here you're looking at bottle rare bottles or bottles from other parts of the world that if aren't bought a, otherwise if i could give a quick shout out to malivore Malivore have a couple of wines that are mainstays at uh at in the vintages section of the LCBO. I did a fantastic tasting in early January um of about 15 20 wines of which none were available at the LCBO. Mhm. Mm-hmm. I mean oftentimes the bottle uh, uh, in Ontario specifically that bottle that single bottle in the LCBO is almost like a like a little business card, right? It's like yep drink it do you like it you should come to the winery and explore the rest so going back to the bottle shops um i know one of the big shocking things for me was that peter pantry i would say is one of the most established bottle shops in toronto yep. like if we're thinking about all the bottle shops that exist in toronto the peter pantry was one. i think the reason why it shocked us all so much was is that out of all when we talk about restaurants struggling and you know restaurants closing or um pivoting we i think maybe out of all the possible contenders of everyone who's struggling peter pantry was one i thought that you know would be able to outlast you know the I, the the, the, stru- um, the downturn and, and i'm of two minds of this um like one i still I don't think the mainstream culture has shifted to the point where bottle shops are a viable alternative to the LCBO. I don't think a lot of people are of the mindset of, I'd like to buy a really nice, unique bottle. I'd like to buy a rare bottle, like you and I just mentioned here. And I don't think people are just like, you know what, I'm going to go to Peter Pantry. I'm going to go to Grand Cru Deli. I'm going to go to Archive, who, while they shifted back to Wine Bar, are still offering a lot of takeout bottles. Like, I, I just don't think that that culture has shifted. And, you know, the thing I find surprising is that even without the mainstream shift, you think that a market like Toronto would be big enough to support a high-end wine boutique, which is basically what Peter Pantry was. It was a high-end wine boutique. Right. So maybe like this, like uh, maybe the question we're asking now is, I guess, why, right? Why did Peter Pantry close and is price point part of it, right? Is it that is it that they are selling bottles of wine and yes, their average bottle is closer to $100 than it is the $30? Is it because the average consumer still has yet to... Um, appreciate or take the risk on buying those bottles of wine and i mean you might be right on that if we think about i'm pretty sure the metrics in the lcb will show that most people don't go in and drop a hundred dollars on a bottle of wine most of them are probably buying bottles sub twenty dollars and i can say that peter pantry definitely wasn't definitely not a place for that well i think the other piece of the puzzle too that is oft overlooked and i think sorry the light bulb just went off in my head because we didn't talk about this before we hit record though is um the lack of a fair markup for mm. shops. I think bottle shops have a bit of an advantage because they're carrying rare bottles, but how much can the market sustain? Like if you're being forced to buy a bottle at wholesale for $55, and this is the same bottle that if you and me and a few friends buy a case of 12, we could still get it for $55. How much of a markup can it sustain before we're just getting our friends together to buy a case, right? Yeah. Like if you're paying $70 on a bottle of La Pierre Morgon that someone can get for 55, you know, that's a $25 markup. Yes, $25 markup. Nope. 20. 20. Anyways, <laughs> I'm so tired. I'm, I'm bad at math. But yeah, I, the, the system needs to change to allow these bottle shops to exist that's that's kind of where i'm going with this yeah you're right like i mean there's definitely a huge bigger commentary and conversation about 
the issues with the LCBO, which I know you and I have touched on many a time, and it's such a large beast to unpack. Maybe we need a whole episode dedicated to just <laughs> why Moroccan Andre, as wine lovers, seem to despise the LCBO so much. Um, it wasn't as- always like it wasn't always like this. Like I. I, I- <laughs> I, I was reflecting on my career because, like, I've been I've been writing about wine since 2010, and like, there was kind of a mushy middle where I feel like the LCBO was still servicing like the hardcore wine people, and then it's just like I don't know. The new CEO, I feel like, since he has taken over, things have changed, and the experience has gotten profoundly awful. It's so funny. Uh, like I, I, I sometimes use my my family as my test subjects for yeah. trying to kind of like feel out what the mainstream audience thinks of the LCBO because they're you know the most immediate to me and they only really know about how to buy wine from the LCBO. And my mom loves the LCBO Food and Wine magazine and regularly tells me to grab one whoa, for her. Whoa, 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 whoa! We okay, Stella. If you're listening to this, we have to stop calling it a magazine. I well, and this is it's, what it's I was trying catalog, to get. It's a catalog. It's a brochure. Um, I just did an audit of the uh, food and drink for uh, December uh, for a project that I'm working on. Guess how many ads there were in the 250-page magazine. And I, I didn't count the number of pages, but guess how many different advertisers there were. Half. It was 84 ads out of 250 pages, and that didn't... So 30%-ish. But that doesn't include the multi-page spreads. There were a couple right. of ads that were spread over four pages, and it was just like... Most of these ads are for wines and the ads are framed as editorial content. Like it's 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 mind boggling that that this exists, but then I remember it's a monopoly, right? They can do whatever the hell they want. Well, and this is what I was trying to eventually get to is like I've got you know, I've grabbed this book from my mother um all the time because I know it's the one little thing that makes her kind of happy. And recently, I almost felt like I had to like burst her bubble because it was something that brought her joy. And she doesn't go out to the LCBO often, so it's something I would personally bring for her to her. And I almost feel like this is like I'm about to sever a little bonding moment between my mother because I had to be like, "Mom, did you know that the LCBO Food and Wine like I can't really support." This this quote unquote magazine because <laughs> it <laughs> because it undermines all the wine and food publications that are out there that actually yep. rely on dollars and that the LCBO gets to hand out for free. it was like a whole thing and then my mother had you know she was just had a moment just and uh, to be to her credit she's been trying to warm up to the idea like sometimes she'll be like I like the magazine even though I know it's not good like she's, <laughs> she's <laughs> okay trying. okay the she's redeem trying. the redeemable quality. The recipes are still pretty solid. Okay. Well, maybe they just need more of them and then they'll become a little bit more redeemable. But, you know, we're talking about kind of things that are not great about the food and wine industry. I know you came upon an article recently (laughs) that for all intents and purposes was meant to be a positive, uplifting article, but seemed to shine like a positive, like kind of put a positive spin on certain elements of the food and drink industry that maybe shouldn't have been, oh. I guess, gen- like integrated into an overall article about human perseverance. You know, I, I yeah, I want to tread lightly because it is a story of, of the triumph of the human spirit overcoming it, it, adversity. It, it was in Toronto Life, so I, I don't want to name the, um, the author or the subject, but go to Toronto Life. I'm sure you'll be able to find it relatively industry, sorry, relatively easy. And um, uh, it's an article about a young chef coming up in the industry. And the whole beginning is, you know, I think you and I were just talking about like how important it is when you work with great people, how that has an impact on your work. He name drops people like Mark McEwen, Rob Gentile, Sash Simpson, Maddie Matheson, Basilio Pesque, uh, and Susser Lee. Uh, he name drops restaurants that he worked at BLT Prime in New York, Le Select Bistro, Canoe, Canoe you know, Mainstay Canoes. But... There were there was one paragraph in particular that really stood out to me, and it's the sort of thing where, you know, I'm gonna put a bit of blame on Toronto Life, and I'm I'm sorry Toronto Life because I know I write for you and you edit my work as well, but like I, I think we're at a point where we need to have some serious conversations about how parts of the industry are portrayed and how parts of the industry are still being glorified. And I'm just going to read this passage from the piece, and then I want you to tell me what you think, and I'll tell you what I thought after after it. Um, I stayed at Canoe for two years before I was fired for leaving too much meat on a tuna carcass. My bad. Eventually, I landed a job interview with Susser Lee. He asked if I had a girlfriend, and when I said yes, he told me it would be hard to maintain a relationship while working at Lee Restaurant. The job was demanding, and every ounce of my passion had to go towards cooking. I'm going to leave it 
leave it there. I mean, the rest of it is, uh, Lee was tough, but if you cooked with precision, dedication, and heart, he noticed. I respected him, but in the end, I quit to work at Eagle's Nest Golf Course and apprentice for Didier Leroy on my days off. Anyways, it's just him talking about his comeuppance in the industry. And did, did that... What what did you think when you read that or heard that? Well, it's interesting because, like as you as you mentioned, um, we discussed this a little bit before recording, and I know you and I are of two minds in a little bit of how we chose to interpret the article because I think there was some the way the article was written, it was almost like here's the bullet points of everything I did coming up as a chef before the major um, life changing you know, incident. Life changing incident that the kind of i think the meat of the article is trying to get to yeah so it was it was written kind of in almost what i call like a listicle format like very resume yeah and left sort of how we chose to interpret it based on our particular experiences so for me when i read the the piece about suzerly and asking whether he had a girlfriend and said it would be hard to maintain a relationship it felt like almost just um a mentor trying to give a reality check because i i came up in the acting world and there's something that i've told a lot of young um uh, acting hopefuls a lot before was this industry is extremely tough like if like you know people come up to me and they're like oh i think acting would be fun it would be great i'm like it's also hard you won't sleep you're it's going to be tough on your self-esteem um you're going to work long hours you're going to not make that much money there's a chance you'll never make money and people forget that because all they see is hollywood they see the shiny and so i have to give them that reality check that's the sense i got from it now Thinking back now, when I but if you the first sentence you brought up, I stayed at Canoe for two years before I was fired for leaving too much meat on a tuna carcass. My bad. I think the kind of flippantness of just kind of being like, yeah, no kidding. It was okay eh? for me to be fired for leaving meat on a carcass. Now there's two like if I want to dig deeper, we don't know how many times this happened. This could have been a multiple occurrence, but reading the article made it sound like. It only happened once, and you were fired for doing it once. And I yeah. don't think that is, um, I, I don't think that is like a really ethical way of managing a restaurant. If you're going to fire someone who's up and coming on one mistake that they made. You know, the thing for me was framing it around the word job interview, right? Like this wasn't him meeting Suserly and and having a conversation about, hey, Suser, I want to be a chef. This was a job interview. And I can't imagine, and, and this is the one thing, if I could go back in time after a really, and, and I, I've never, I haven't really talked about this part on the podcast, my career in radio, which I, I still think is quite traumatic. And the working conditions in radio are, are beyond awful, especially as they existed in 2021 when I left. But I cannot imagine walking into a, a job interview, a job interview with a future employer and them point blank telling me to my face, well, work-life balance, screw that shit. Like, you're expected to be married to this job. It's just like, I don't know. It just, it even being told in, you know, framing it as part of his past, reading the fact that this is an, an article about overcoming adversity, it just felt like, these bad behaviors, the canoe, the job interview at, at Suser Lee's restaurant is still glorifying this really yucky part of the industry that I think needs to change. And, and not just with hospitality, like with industries in, in general. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the maybe my the question I would ask then, or maybe my follow-up to that is perhaps the article took two very different ideas yeah. and mashed it into the article where the inherent part of the article was about uplifting and human perseverance and overcoming adversity uh of, of an of a of a very traumatic fit like accident yeah not not even an accident but a very traumatic event yeah. that happened to the chef which when you write when you um kind of bookend the article with sort of the adversities he faced as a chef at the beginning puts the wrong could lead the reader to take the wrong spin and yeah. actually to to your point on the glorification of the hustle culture and chef because i and i mean this permeates many industries right it permeates the tech industry the startup industry it permeates you know the the performing arts industry there's a lot of toxicity that we have normalized yeah. in society over the years and i think if we don't take a moment to critically look at it, as you mentioned with you know whoever edited the toronto life article maybe if someone is not immersed in the uh, F&B industry, the food and beverage industry, and the hospitality industry for a long time, and reckon and realizes that this is actually not a behavior that we should be perpetuating any longer. It's very easy to just in the moment be like, 
oh, this is normal and just kind of like uh, pass it through versus yeah. questioning it. It's the same yeah. reason, you know, we talk about like how uh, when we see when uh, a really bad ad hits the mark and you're like, oh, my God, how, how did, did that, that get ad, on there? How did that get through? It's because someone in that room never even thought for a moment how it could affect um, their audience with it. And well, so it's, and, it could and be maybe the- it's a moment why we need to take apart art- uh, articles like this because even casual lifestyle articles needs to be seen um, with a much more critical lens even if it's meant to be just like a feel-good piece. Well, I mean, that's that. Like, um, food food network culture might be partly to blame for this. The whole idea that a, a yelling, screaming Gordon Ramsay is an acceptable work environment because it's been romanticized on, on television. Um, I, yeah, I think what you said was what I said, but a lot more thoughtfully than what I just said. So, <laughs> um, so moving on here, uh, you and I had a chance to um, indulge in some sweetness this past weekend. A lot of sweetness. Um, That is the Ice Wine Festival that is starting in Niagara, Niagara on the Lake. And I think it continues till the end of the month, does it not? It does. It does. So if you guys are looking at warming your spirits and your bodies um, with kind of syrupy, nectary, quintessentially Canadian goodness... Maybe going to the Ice Wine Festival activities <laughs> is for you. You know, I love like all the language that you used here because this is one of these things where, you know, reflecting on my career as a as a wine writer going back to 2010, I still remember visits down to Niagara when I first moved to Ontario going all the way back to 2007, being up at the tasting bar at some of the classic quintessential wineries that you think about for ice wine and having the poor person behind the counter trying to downplay the sweetness of ice wine. And I mean, this is one where um, over the years, like I've really reflected on, okay, you know, I, I've joked on the air that there's still that original bottle of Inniskillen ice wine still being passed around from person to person at an office secret Santa. You know, I think a lot of people have ice wine either sitting in their cupboard or in their cellar because they don't know when they're going to drink it. And, you know, I, I think just one of the, the big problems ice wine has had has been... Food pairing, I mean, that's something that uh, I have strong opinions on in general, but I think when you're dealing with something that has that much sugar and that much sweetness, you do need to be more mindful of food pairing. I think I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of firing off like a whole double barrel shot of like everything we can unpack that we really did over the weekend, eh? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's a good preface what you brought up because it almost shows, for better or for worse, we Canadians know ice wine. Like Canadians, we know about ice wine. International folks, when they talk, whenever we bring up Canadian wine to them, they're not talking about our Cab Franc. They're not co- talking about our Pinot Noir. The first thing that usually comes out of someone's mouth is, "Oh, you make ice wine." Yeah. Oh, um, well, your ice wine's good. Or, oh, I, I'm, you know, I see your ice wine stores, but no one really talks about anything else. For better or for worse, it's what we're known for. Yeah. And I think historically, um, in the last few years, it has fallen out of fashion. It's almost like when you say ice wine, it's a little bit in, in jest as opposed to looking at it and being like, oh, ice wine, right? You don't say the word ice wine necessarily the same way you talk about burgundy per yeah. se. And I think it had a lot to do with a misunderstanding of what ice wine is and how it was treated. Like, it's absurd to me that someone would try and downplay the sweetness of ice wine. I mean, in terms of the sweetness skill, ice wine is top, 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 top sweetness. Like, you know, we talk about often dry wines or off dry wines. And when we talk about off dry wines or even sweeter wines, we may talk up to maybe winds up to 60, 70 grams of residual sugar per liter. But when you're talking about ice wine, we're talking 250 to over 300 grams of residual sugar. All right, there all right, is all right. no hiding now, from that. Now, here's a factoid for you, because uh, this is something where I've done some research at length about ice wine, because I've just been trying to sort of crack that nut about why people don't drink ice wine. And, and like you said, like, it is the quintessential uh, Canadian wine. Like we live in one of the regions on the planet that um, we can make ice wine every year. As we're recording this, it's minus ten ish outside. But I mean, just for comparison in sweetness, how many grams per liter of sugar do you think there is in a can of Coca Cola? Um, you know, I used to actually know this number, um, given my 
particular uh, profinity <laughs> for for being a health nut. I would I think in a can of Coca Cola, I think it's usually between twenty five to thirty five grams per hun- like per can or per hundred milliliters or something like that. You are actually spot on. Coca Cola is one hundred and ten grams per liter. So if you break it down to a three hundred and thirty five milliliter can, you weren't far off at thirty five. 35 grams in a can of coke mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there you have it so you're drinking substantially more sugar once again you can't hide from that it seems absurd to me that anyone would try and lean um lean away from it in the way they describe it to you because now you're almost misinforming your customer to yes, what ice 100%. wine is but we heard a lot of people talk, and I was actually really, really pleased with the weekend that we got to um, experience because not once was... Oh, okay, we had one dessert course, but the ice wine that was being presented both at the gala and at the events that we got to partake on on um, on uh, Saturday afternoon, ice wine was paired next to savory dishes, which is something... I friggin' love. I absolutely love it. It is the way to enjoy ice wine. It is the way to really help this wine shine. It's how you should be doing it. I absolutely agree. And um, fairly recently, I had some amazing Sichuan cuisine up in North York. Uh, shout out to Hot Spicy Spicy on Ravel Road in North York uh, near Leslie and Finch. For you folks who live a little bit further north in the GTA, some of the most phenomenal spicy cuisine you'll ever get. And I, you know, I, I made a little post about pairing wine with spicy food. And I said, one of the things that is delicious is something sweeter with spice and ice wine would be an amazing pairing against spicy food. Um, and if you don't want necessarily the, the viscosity, cause it is like a, you know, more viscous and rich beverage because of the sugar inside of it, you can always spritz it. There's no harm. I think that's the other thing, right? It's like, I think one of the reasons why we're beginning to understand ice wine better is the treatment of it. Um, I know, so, you know, you and I had the opportunity to attend um, the start of the ice wine festival Mm -hmm. uh, through a series of media tastings through wine country, Ontario, and also attend the ice wine gala that night. Mm -hmm. Um, And I myself had the chance to do a media tasting at Inniskillen, of course, Inniskillen being kind of um, their quote is region in vice Huh? The, the, OG, the OG, but the way they say, they actually said we didn't invite then ice wine, but we perfected it. That's actually their slogan because they said, "quote unquote," we didn't actually invent ice wine. But yes, the OG in Ontario for ice wine, and one of the things we were all discussing was sort of its revival. And one of the things that was that we discussed and that, that I brought up was I think we never really taught people how to serve it that maybe people treated it like a bottle of wine might have served it in substantially larger portions than it should be had. Or, and or, also maybe not being so darling about it, that it's okay to be making into things like cocktails. It's, um, it's okay to lighten it up with a spritz. It's okay to add bitters to it. Or it was being relegated to the end of the meal because you hear the term dessert wines, which is like, oh, we must serve this with dessert. And when mm-hmm, you start mm-hmm. serving sweet on sweet, like you're really just... You're, you're clobbering your palate like there's really nothing left to enjoy we talked about the amount of like sh- like sugar and that's the thing though is even with a lot of sugar even compared to say a, a cola a can of coca-cola there's still chemistry at play there like when you're dealing with riesling ice wine when you're dealing with vidal ice wine you're dealing with different levels of acid which lets the wine play differently on the palate um yeah this is it's it i think if we're checking boxes here, all of the above is why ice wine has really needed a, a makeover and to see what wine country Ontario, what the wineries are doing and people just trying to take it back. Cause I mean, the other big picture thing as well is um, with the trade uh, relationship with Canada and China, a lot of the wineries in Niagara lost their largest revenue stream in terms of where they were sending ice wine when it was when it was made. That we need to find a way to get the domestic market to get locals excited about drinking it, and I think we are on our way. Um, may I may I take us on a slight tangent before we unpack more about ice wine? Just because there's something I know you're <laughs> going to be excited to poke me about sure <laughs> sure because we kind of we kind of hit two boxes of stuff where you know I, I i think i'm i'm respectful but i have strong opinions on them we did a really interesting tasting with dan speck at henry of pelham yes and um 
I know where you're going. Do you want to poke me about this, or do you want me to throw it on the table and you just make fun of me or or question question me after I say what I say? Oh, you got to give me the cannon fodder first. <laughs> so we sat down with with um, Dan, and he had opened for us a 1998, a 2002, and a 2016 Cabernet Merlot Spec Family Reserve. These are wines that I generally love. These are wines that I like to keep in my cellar. The Speck Family Reserve line, I, I think, is tragically underrated with the more hardened wine snobs in Ontario. And I think this is one where the entire Speck family, they know where they stand in the market, and they know that they make good wine. But, you know, as someone where, like, you know, we have the Tauses and the Batchelders of the world, I still wish that the Speck Family Reserve line of Henry of Pelham would be included in the same breath as... Uh, some of the the cool kids in Niagara, for lack of a better term. Um, what was your favorite wine of the three, Maroki? <laughs> what was my favorite wine of the three? Ooh, uh, I was not ranking them when I was tasting, but I will say I really enjoyed that 1998 Cab Merlot. It was pretty. <laughs> yeah, it was very much a rolling baseball glove that's been sitting in the back of a closet. Uh, no, all teasing. No, no, no. It's a baseball glove that's been pa- placed inside a glass case and dusted with love. <laughs> um, so you know that I've been on the record as saying that I'm not a fan of terribly old wine, right? Yes. Would we say 21 years is considered old Especially for Ontario? Especially for Ontario, yes. Where we, in those days, were not really well known for making quote-unquote sellable wines or that we never really marketed our wines as sellable wines. My favorite wine of the three was 2002. Yeah, bringing Andre to the dark side. (laughs) I thought it still had a lot not a lot like it had whispers of freshness left to it and had moved to like dried fruit hadn't quite gone to the the Rawlings baseball glove mode yet but it was a stunning wine i actually liked the 2002 better than the 2016 which i felt was showing its oak a little bit um a little bit too much well and that's where it goes to show where sometimes i think the ageability or where wine shines on different palates also matters and how the the wine is treated right if the wine is living in the moment and henry pelham quite um proudly you know mentions that they use american oak which i know is also not a an oak treatment to your fancy maybe it's something that ages out better uh to be fair to be fair i don't know if you heard there was a a, a slight sidebar conversation with with dan where he did admit that not much american oak works its way into the speck family reserve line it's mainly the entry-level wines at henry of pelham that tend to see more american oak Right, fair enough, fair enough. But that too, but I think the same, my, uh, my assessment stays in that when you have certain strong profiles, whether it is tannin, whether it's oak, um, those things do smooth out and age out, uh, in, with time spent in bottle if the wine is made correctly. All right. So, so I agree and you are correct. And moving on, just so we can get back to the ice wine. Yes, yes, we, we really should circle back to the we, ice we wine. We also had a trio of Baco Noir on the table from Challenging Vintages 2021, 2019, and from the Stunning Hot Vintage 2016. This is not circling back to ice wine. On no, here. but okay, but we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. But um, I really thought that that 2016 <laughs> Baco Noir was um, showing exceptionally well and... The um, American oak influence had really well integrated, and it was starting to, you know, give off, I think, a little um, Californian inspiration. Like, you know, Baco is wow, that, bu- is California that... and Ontario in the same conversation. Oh, and Baco Noir. And Baco Noir, too. Yeah, yeah. And on record, Andre in this podcast is talking about his enjoyment of old wines, his enjoyment of the hybrid Baco Noir, and his enjoyment uh, and, and in comparison <laughs> to Californian climates, all in one go. Oh, and I also said wonderful American oak integration, which are also words that rarely come out of this mouth. 
I think Henry of Pelham should quote all of that in all their marketing. <laughs> <On Julia. laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. Um, so going back to the savory food pairings, uh, we did a fantastic workshop with uh, Terra Mia events at Casa Mia Ristorante in Niagara Falls. I need to spend some more time in Niagara Falls. Like I rarely make it that far down the highway just because there's so many great places to eat in St. Catharines these days. But I, I was impressed. I was impressed. Yeah, I think it was a really great experience. And uh, they said, uh, you don't leave that workshop. No one leaves Olivia's workshop with a bad ravioli. And I think she, uh, there was, um, the fact that all of us didn't have an exploding ravioli was testament to that. Um, I, I love know, watching you. I love uh, watching you cook. And I hope this doesn't come off as <laughs> come off as as too as too mean, because I mean it with um, with the affection it's meant to be. But I love watching you cook because it reminds me of like, watching a baby giraffe stand up for the first time you know it's just like you look so uncomfortable doing it it is not my favorite pastime i will fully admit i also i i also don't like things sticking on my hands and when you're making pasta dough from scratch the whole like rolling your hands in a flower and wondering if it will ever leave your fingertips is is a particular ick for me yeah but that's just it's just me right it, it, it's with dough it's it's with um touching candy it's like with touching fruit it, it's all of that for me um i i think one of the other things about like you know we talked about ice wine pairings and but the other thing i want to bring attention to for you know listeners who let's say are still um venturing into the world of wine and uh, beginning to understand of it. I think one of the things I think is really important as an educational point is not only the fact that like, yes, let's just lean into the sweetness. Yes. Let's recognize that ice wine should be treated as perhaps pair, uh, in terms of food pairings with some things that are in the savory, umami, spicy field, but also the prestige of ice wine. Like one of the things we talk about Ontario and why we think it's great for people to go out to the wineries is to just learn where your food you know we always talk about farm to table dining we want to learn about where our food comes from i think it's also important to learn where our wine comes from and ice wine right for for those of you who don't know I've, I've mentioned it several times to people over this past weekend obviously because i've been at the event and then people have asked what i've been up to and i launched into my my long uh, mono uh, monologue about how i went to the ice wine festival and and trying to explain to people why i was drinking so much ice wine over the weekend and and of course this weekend this past weekend we should notably also say ice wine harvest has also begun yep and this is that whole thing about educating people where ice wine comes from <laughs> ice wine according to the rules of vqa um, needs to be picked at minus eight degrees or lower, according to um, Nicholas. Uh, I'm going to pronounce his last name wrong. Nicholas Giz- Gizuk. Do you know how to pronounce his last name? I don't, oh. but I know the whole winemaking team at Artera is yes. so good. Uh, yes, yeah, so Nicholas over at um, Nicholas over at Inniskillen, yeah. he actually prefers to to harvest at minus ten. He says he thinks that's where you get the optimum freeze on the grapes, and you're harvesting in the middle of the night. Yeah, and you press the grapes in the middle of the night or at the crack of dawn. Oh, I have a feeling this year there there was less harvesting happening in the middle of the night because, uh, I mean, just between you and me, and I mean, any anyone in Niagara listening to that wants to correct me, the reason why it happens at night is because that's usually the first opportunity it hits minus eight. We've had a nice sustained minus eight for a couple of days now. Fair, fair. I'm pretty sure I saw a picture of Allison over at Niagara College Teaching Winery uh, holding up a, a bucket, a basket of um, ice wine grapes, and it looked like there was sunlight. So she might have harvested that during the day. So you might be right for that. They might have, for you know, in some of the rare occasions, not needed to be out in the blistering cold with a headlight on, picking in the dark. Yeah, I, I mean... Just because we're getting long here, I know we can keep the story uh, a little bit short, but you had a, a recent incident at a wine rack, and, and this is one where I don't mind throwing the uh, the retailer under the bus because customer, serious, it, customer service is very important, especially when you're representing one brand. But you had, um, let's just say, a salty employee uh, argue with you that there was a VQA rule that it needed to be minus eight for three days, and... This is something I've heard over my career, this myth that it needs to be minus eight for three days before you can harvest ice wine. Uh, we clarified with the people at Wine Country Ontario that this three-day thing is a myth. The moment it's minus eight, 
you're legally ready to rock it's up to the winemaker's discretion like you said uh with what nick does at um at inniskillen waiting till minus 10 ensures that the fruit is optimally frozen and i'm sure all the winemakers in niagara have their own secret sauce to make sure the ice wine's delicious yes Absolutely. So for, for if you guys are hearing all sorts of information from different sales folks or, or different people at wineries, a lot of it, a lot of wine, there's a lot of information out there. So, you know, to, to, to be fair to a lot of people who especially are new staff members who are hired seasonally, usually in the summer, there's a lot to learn about wine. You might not learn it all. Yeah. But if you want to hear the information straight from our mouth, straight from the winemaker's mouth and from the, the from the folks at Wine Country Ontario who've, whose literal job is to be on top of all this information. Um, the stipulation is that it has to be minus eight. The grapes have to be 35 bricks, which is um, the measurement of the sugar level inside the grapes. And then any time after that, it's sort of at the discretion of the winemaker of when they think is the optimum opportunity to be picking these grapes. And maybe for some people, it's at 3 a.m. because they believe that when that's when the moon is at its <laughs> highest and the tides are at its be- uh, uh, lowest or something. Would you do an ice wine? <laughs> Would you ever do an ice wine harvest, Maroki? Like, I, I know, I know, I, and this is this is one where, you know, to everyone listening, you are bona fide. You have done the shit you have gotten sticky wrist to wrist neck to ankle so this you are not soft by any means um in terms of, <laughs> in terms of wanting to get your hands dirty in a vineyard but would you do an ice wine harvest i would i would i've actually been asking around to see who would take me on and i know that one of the reasons why i haven't done it to date is because you can like all harvests you can rarely plan for them. Yeah, 100%. The notice often comes quite last minute. And for ice wine, sometimes it comes even more last minute. And just given that, as as we mentioned before, both you and I have other day jobs and, and 8,000 side hustles on top of our day jobs. Sometimes <laughs> it's hard to coordinate going to a harvest. But I have been keeping my ear to the ground. I'd like to do it at least once. I, I have a thing, you know, if we're going to talk so much about the thing, we should really learn and get down and dirty with the thing too i love that i love that and i i do hope that that's something that comes through with the people listening to the show is like while you and i we offer some critique and analysis we're not afraid to get our hands dirty all right let's unpack the gala really quick um i've been going to wine events in niagara now for a decade i can say um hands down that is the coolest venue i've ever been to like that was a cool af venue i hope that they host other wine events at this venue i i think there's room for improvement in terms of logistics and execution like it was a bit daunting um you know we were fortunate enough to be able to skip the line as media but it was lined up out the door for the 7 p.m start time there was a lineup for the coat check there were massive lines for food um you know i think logistically there's some stuff that i hope they learn from but i really hope they don't give up on the venue and it was uh, at the niagara parks power station like right next to niagara falls mm-hmm. and I, I believe you can also visit the power station during the day as a tourist attraction as, as well and one of the cool side bits of the evening that had less to do with wine and more to do with the venue itself is that they have this tunnel 180 meters below ground that takes you straight out to the falls so if you want a view from the falls from like the most amazing angle ever um that's actually quite the experience to have and i would say i i really enjoyed the gala like you like you mentioned there's logistical things that could be improved upon i think that's the you know i think that's the thing that just inevitably happens with all large-scale events especially overall especially when you haven't thrown a ton of events there like the like they, they've done the ice wine gala like at at falls view in the past like there's a few places that have been there and like they're they're always nice like doing it in a convention space is nice but like you know in spite of the lineups in spite of everything i i'm still just like i'm in awe of like i don't know when i moved to ontario in 2007 i said i would live in ontario as long as i'm not sick of niagara falls and to get to be right up at close to niagara falls as part of a wine event was just the cherry on the sunday you know 
Yeah, for sure. And and one thing I will say about the gala too is um as someone who is kind of an introvert and a hermit, I I do have to get worked up a little bit for events like this. I'm always worried it's going to be a little bit too loud, a little bit too party like. It wasn't. It really was no. a gala. It had yeah. all kind of the glitz and glamour. It was worth dressing up for. Um the lineup for the food was a little long, but honestly, I didn't have to wait very long for any of the wines. Yeah. And they had so many great producers there. This is one of those opportunities if you're looking at experiencing Ontario Wine, not just ice wine they were pouring lots of other stuff at the gala as well but if you want to do it all in one room that was one of the places to be and any- i i always love that there's always it gives me it's like that opportunity where you get to see all your old friends right yeah. there's all these winemakers who i always keep promising that i need to make the trip out to never can you know you go out to wineries for a day for me i only get to see about three once you get locked into conversation with everyone and that's not enough in a season and here's a chance to say hi to everyone that evening while tasting what ontario has to offer ice wine and beyond do you have any wines that you want to shout out because um i'm not gonna lie i actually had like a clear standout in terms of like quality just and I, I can I can talk a bit more about why I think it was the best but like I was actually surprised that I had one particular ice wine that stood out just in terms of like head and shoulders above everything else that I tasted did you have any experience like that I'm gonna throw that one back to you while I think about it you know it was the Inesquillen Cabernet Sauvignon ice wine and I mean this is one where um you know I'm not usually on the hunt for um any obscure variety or anything like that like that's certainly not what makes this wine great because you rarely see Cabernet Sauvignon turned into ice wine just because it is thin-skinned it's prone to break down you know it's not as uh it's not as easy to work with as Cabernet Franc which we often see as ice wine but it was just something about how refined and elegant this wine was it was really dense in its red fruit flavors where I find even with Cab Franc typically or other red ice wines you still have a lot of that like honeyed note and the beeswax texture that envelop what you might get with the red fruit this was all red fruit first with a really clean finish um the acid balance on it was off the charts i think this might be um the second best ice wine that i've ever had in niagara the best being a big head vidal that they made a little while ago that tasted like caramel corn i still miss that wine oh that sounds so good i would love to try that okay um back to me i i will precursor by by one of these things so when i was there um taking advantage of the discovery pass which i believe also is usable for the next couple of weekends so those of you who are heading down to niagara or niagara on the lake and looking for some fun food and wine pairings you can pick up the discovery pass and you can go to niagarawinefestival.com to look for that and basically you pick up a pass and you can go visit different wineries where they'll give you an ice wine and food pairing a lot of it's savory yay delicious um, I kind of made it my mission to actually look for ice wine made from varieties that are not typical, right? Vidal, uh, Riesling, um, usually some sort of red, typically Cab Sauvre, Cab Franc. I was just, I was just like, hey, let's try all this stuff off the beaten path, and. And one of the reasons why I'm, I've been wanting to explore is seeing whether how, like how ice wine gets represented in different varieties and whether mm-hmm. you get uh, varietal differences, whether you can taste it. And I know one of the hypotheses that so far hasn't panned out for me was I thought if you drink Gewürztraminer ice wine, it would become even more Gewürztraminer. Yeah, I know. It's disappointing. I was, I was, yeah. I was actually thinking that too, because we had a, we had a couple of Gewürztraminer ice wines. Yeah, it was just like, it, where, where's my rose petal? Where's my rose yeah, petal? Yeah, yeah. It actually kind of flattens out and becomes a little bit more, um, a quote unquote, like standardized white ice wine. But if I had to think about ones that stood out for me, I don't know if it was like my hand, like I, I will fully admit I was just sort of enjoying the vibe more than just really ranking them in my head and getting super, super clear on what my favorite, favorite ice wine was. But if I had to narrow it down to two that stand out for me, one is Byland's uh, Chardonnay Ice Wine, mm-hmm. um, Niagara-on-the-Lake, one of the newer wineries out there, more well-known for their Bajou Vineyards, um, probably brought to fame by Thomas Batchelder sourcing his grapes from there. Um, one, because, I mean, you and me, we love our Chardonnay. I think it's incredibly <laughs> unique to see Chardonnay transformed into an ice wine. You get some of that, like, 
pretty uh like fruity floor like fruity floral a little bit tropical like it's bringing out the tropical fruit characteristics of chardonnay even though our chardonnay tends to lean a little more citrus and niagara um i just think it's really pretty i think it's a really special product it's extremely fairly priced as well i think it's 50 dollars for the bottle which for ice wine is quite tremendous yeah um the other one that i really enjoyed and stood out to me was Pilateri's Pinot Noir ice wine. Oh, yeah. I think probably similar, yeah, similarly to what you described about Cabernet Sauvignon, not a common grape to be no, made it was in good. ice wine. It yeah, it's already a heartbreak grape. And the other thing is there's a bitterness, there's a slight bitterness to it that I, I tasted, which I think is a good balance against ice wine. And it's actually lighter too. It was lighter bodied and um and it part of it's because it actually does have less residual sugar. I think it sits at 250 grams, which is less than the, the standard ice wine. So it, it's a little bit lighter if you don't want it like unctuously sweet. And I like the bitters. I think it was a really good balance of flavor. I thought it was just like a cool product to to see it as unique, like knowing how difficult it is to uh, just deal with Pinot Noir in general. Like you know, I don't the the um the the happy like uh, situations that happen in Niagara can be a lot of fun to a lot of fun to see. Anyways, yeah. that was yeah, so that, there was, you have that it. was a wrap up. Like um, yeah, thank, thanks to One Country Ontario for in uh, inviting us down. Like uh, I. I learned a lot, which, uh, you know, I always say happens by accident when I'm down in, in Niagara, but uh, no, it was great. I think it's always good to just sort of revitalize our loves for certain products yep. too, right? Like there's so much wine out there. We're always tasting different things. It's good to draw back focus and, and remind ourselves what makes ice wine so special. What makes it such a signature Canadian product? And maybe just but as we go, um, if, if you guys haven't gotten enough out of winter yet, and if you guys too want to experience what ice wine harvest is all about, I actually believe that Inniskillen is hosting a public event on the 27th where they're doing an ice wine brunch where you arrive fresh and early in the morning i think you arrive at 7 a.m so you can participate in some ice uh in some ice wine harvest and then warm up with a little bit of ice wine hot chocolate so um if that's something you want to live and you want to get the experience go check it out right on that sounds amazing now coming up on our next i think the next couple episodes uh we're going to be carving up some time to talk about lunar new year yes i'm very excited you know me, me i'm always excited about lunar new year and it's the year of the dragon I am excited for the Lunar New Year as well because I like to eat Chinese banquet food and it's the only opportunity that a white guy like me feels comfortable going <laughs> and and pointing at the menu and doing that. So I'm looking forward to having you uh, guide me along the way and hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, share um, a meal together to celebrate uh, celebrate your heritage. I love that. I love that. So stick around, folks. Lots of things coming up on Taste Together over the next month. Food, dr- food related, drinks related, and good times related.